0: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality Where we have a roundtable of contributors Pushing the antithesis in every area of life From family to government Apologetics to homeschooling Being a wife and a mother A husband, a father Single, widow Business owner or employee You will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life.
1: This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. The following audio blogs can be found in written form at foundationsofreconstruction.com. National Judgment and Repentance by Jonathan Character God's law necessarily carries sanctions. Negative sanctions, or curses, are promised for disobedience, and positive sanctions, or blessings, are promised for obedience. Today, because of our nation's rejection of God's law, it experiences the curse such defiance necessarily brings. The modern church, however, refuses to understand and recognize the covenantal relationship of the scriptures and the already present curse of God on America. But because of this mindset, it is necessary to show-examine how God's curse has indeed already come upon this nation. Every four years, our country invokes upon itself God's covenantal sanctions in the personal pledge of the person who occupies the highest civil office of president. In years past, the president took the oath of office with his right hand placed upon Deuteronomy 28. Now, he simply places it on the scriptures of the Almighty God. Nevertheless, he in no way frees himself or can free himself from the sanctions which his actions bring. If he is faithful to God and his law, he will be blessed. Since, however, our nation has been unfaithful to God's law, curse has followed and overtaken us just as God promised it would. In First Samuel 8, we have a graphic description of what God's curse upon a nation for rejecting him as sovereign actually looks like. Greater than 10% taxation, military drafts, literal ownership of labor for example physical slavery, loss of property, etc. We also need not to look past the aforementioned Deuteronomy 28 to see even more of God's curses upon our nation. In fact, over 75% of the entire chapter is dedicated to detailing the curses of God upon men and nations in particular. Some of these include natural disaster, military disaster, disease, famine, etc., etc., etc. You might ask then, what has America done to deserve such a curse from God? isn't America a Christian nation? Doesn't this nation trust in God? The short answer is no. Instead, America is a pagan nation. Instead of honoring God, it spurns him by disregarding his law. Several of the ways this has been done in America include murder through abortion, oppression of the widow, orphan, and stranger, unjust warfare, theft through taxation, etc., and this is just the beginning of the list. The sad fact is that all too many who profess the name of Christ do not believe that God has cursed, is cursing, and will curse this nation for its disobedience. For some reason, they think that America holds a special place in God's heart. This is not so. In fact, because of God's gracious gift to America at its founding of a Christian social order, it is even more responsible for its rebellion. For, to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Luke twelve verse forty-eight. Thus the question is this, how can we as Christians deter the continuation and intensification of the national judgment of God upon us and our nation for our sins? There are two answers, faithfulness on an individual level to God's law and national widespread repentance. It is our purpose here to examine national repentance as the means of diversion of God's curse upon our nation. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 3 through 19, we see in Daniel an example of a man who lived under God's time of national judgment and recognized the need for national repentance. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession saying, "O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments." We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land." The first key to national repentance is a self-conscious, explicit recognition and profession of national sin and rebellion. If we do not recognize our sin, we will have no motivation to seek God's face in repentance. Daniel also recognizes that God has been gracious in sending prophetic men to his covenant nation. This is why we need to pray imprecatorily over this God-rejecting nation. We need to bring down God's curse upon this nation. This not only increases its responsibility before God, but also may be a means used by God of bringing national repentance. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day to the men of judah to the inhabitants of jerusalem and to all israel those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you to us o lord belongs open shame to our kings to our princes to our fathers because we have sinned against you to the lord our god belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the lord our god by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us, because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. God confirms his covenant in more than one way, as Daniel here recognizes. His covenant is confirmed through blessing to covenant-keeping man and in cursing to covenant-breaking man. Either way, God declares that, I will never break my covenant with you. Jude 2 verse 1 As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that He has done, and we have not obeyed His voice. It is important to realize that the only remedy to God's curse is faithfulness to God's law, because obedience to it is the only source of blessing. If we are unfaithful, curses will follow. Any attempt by autonomous humanistic man to buy coercion, political manipulation, or whatever means remedy the problem, will be futile. Simply put, any house which does not find its foundation upon God's divine law word, but instead upon the sand, will find its end in desolation. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant, and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of your righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. It is important to realize that national repentance is not only verbal, but involves a self-conscious change on every level of society. The individual, the family, the church, and the state. Repentance involves an action, a change in behavior. Repenting is turning around and doing the opposite of what you were previously doing. It involves going from lawbreaker to lawkeeper, and all true repentance begins with the regeneration of the individual. It involves turning from a lifestyle of sin to a lifestyle of righteous and just living. Additionally, the Scriptures also recognize the legitimacy of another kind of repentance repentance within the religious establishment or the church. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he proclaimed woes upon members of the ministry-industrial complex and who perverted the word of truth such that in reality they constituted a synagogue of Satan. In the book of Revelation, the church at Laodicea is rebuked strongly for its lukewarm apathy. It is for this reason that God gives a clear command for repentance among those who profess his name. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is the only solution to our problems in this country. It begins with the repentance of a pietistic, apathetic church which has refused to perform its duty and fulfill its obligation as the salt and light of the earth. For, as St. Peter tells us, the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. If it first begins at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? This simple truth is perhaps one of the most profound in Scripture. The people of God are the dispensers of God's covenant sanctions in culture. God's sanctions, both positive and negative, will be seen in the culture at large only after they are expressed in and amongst God's people. For, as Van Til so eloquently stated, culture is religion externalized. The true people of God are His common grace to unbelievers. But without special grace, or regeneration, there cannot be common grace to the heathen. Today our culture is living off the borrowed capital of the Christianity it explicitly rejects and the fruit of past covenantal blessings' faithfulness to God's law. Thus, if we want to see the curse of God upon our culture reversed, it will necessarily begin with the faithfulness of God's people and a call to a consistent biblical application of God's sovereignty in every area of life. This is what the scriptures give us—God's ethical, judicial requirements upon all humankind. In conclusion, we must realize, first, that God's judgment has already fallen upon this nation. Second, we must realize that the only way to prevent God's judgment from being realized even more upon this nation is through repentance. Third, Repentance is verbal, self-conscious recognition and sorrow over the violation of God's law, which has occurred, and a focused, unconditional commitment to faithfulness to the law of God as the only God-glorifying way of life. Fourth, this type of repentance must begin with God's people who have themselves become unfaithful to God's law and have not spoken biblically into the social problems which face us today. Fifth, and finally. God will emerge from this conflict victorious, and his godly order will be established so that the righteous are made to flourish like a green leaf and a tree planted by rivers of water. His law will reign supreme, and it will be the delight of all the nations. Isaiah 2, verses 1-4 through Spiritual Warfare by Caitlin Smith In Ephesians 6, verses 10-18, through we read of one of the gifts the Lord has given us, the armor of God. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand." Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with the truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Why has God given us this armor to wear? Historically and traditionally, armor has been worn to protect one's person from harm. It guarded the knight, nullis escapades, and kept the soldier safe in hand-to-hand conflict. In this passage in Ephesians, we see that the spiritual armor of God given to us is paralleled with traditional armor. What is this armor that Paul expounds upon protecting us from as believers? It is protecting us from the wiles of the devil, as we read in verse 11. From the assaults of the father of lies, John 8:44. from our adversary the devil, 1 Peter 5:8. 8, God has given to us truth, faith, peace, his word, righteousness, and our salvation into which to enter the fight, and we must know how to use it to our advantage. Each separate piece of armor is a portion of grace that God has given to us through Christ, but only through his spirit can any of it become an effectual and powerful weapon. How does this armor help us? It gives us protection. It gives us the spiritual weapons we need to fight against the forces of evil. Only the truth of God can fortify and deliver us from Satan's attempts to destroy us. Only in his power and strength can we make a successful resistance to the devil's agenda in this world. We have no resistance in ourselves. We have no strength nor fortitude. 1 John 5 verse 19 Our only protection is to realize this. It is to realize our weakness and understand our utter dependence on Christ and to know that we are broken and weak vessels in desperate need of Christ's assistance. James 4, verse 7. We must have our hearts and souls and minds fixed utterly and entirely upon Him. This battle necessitates all our strength and power and then some. It forces us to realize that we are spiritually, physically, and mentally weak because we were created not to rely upon our strength but instead to lean on christ and trust in him completely we cannot win this war by ourselves spiritual warfare is real it isn't something fictitious and it isn't a game it isn't something that is old-fashioned or outdated spiritual warfare didn't cease when christ entered the world instead it is still going on in our universe the believers in this world are satan's target and because of this we have a duty to stand strong we must stay alert, vigilant, and on guard. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Believers today seem to be in a state of cozy Christianity, a state of existence that wants to remain oblivious to the battles that are going on in this world right now. But God has designed us to engage in this battle, to immerse ourselves into the midst of the war that is going on, in the struggle between good and evil. We aren't going to literally go out and fight an enemy, We aren't literally going to gird ourselves in physical armor and head towards the fighting. We don't see the bullets fired, the cannons blasted, and the swords destructive path. Instead, we see the impact this war is having on our culture. We see the impact of the agenda that the devil desires to institute quite profoundly in our society. We see the temptations in our lives, our convictions, our beliefs, and our standards. We see people around us succumbing to the influence of Satan and compromising on key Christian values which they profess to hold dear. Furthermore, we watch them become apathetic to the sin in our culture, and oftentimes even welcoming the sin into our churches. Our enemy is subtle, and there are times when Satan is working so quietly behind the scenes of our lives that we don't even know that we are facing a battle and need to fight back. We need to realize the artfulness of our enemy and to constantly be alert of his cunningly sly ways. All people wrestle with faults, sins, temptations, and struggles, as we do. This is even true of those we view as more godly or more holy than ourselves. This creates a reliance in us upon our Lord, and it gives us tangible evidence that we really do need Christ. Satan enters when we forget this. He seizes the opportunity when we allow gaps in our armor or when we let our vigilance down for even just a small second. He will realize this weakness in our defense and seek to wreak havoc. No, believers can never be possessed by a demon. As Christians, God hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, according to Colossians one thirteen. Believers have the light of Christ in their souls, and darkness and light cannot exist together. They are incompatible with each other. However, a believer can be harassed by the enemy. We can be tempted and tried, faced with utter despair and destruction. But in our trials we know that our Redeemer liveth. Job 19, verse 35, and is the all-powerful God who came to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, verse 8. One of the tactics of the enemy is to put a question mark where God has put a period. This is why we need to know the truth of God's word and have it written upon our hearts. Psalm 119, verse 11. We see that the devil used this tactic against Eve in the Garden of Eden. He causes her to question God's intentions in regard to forbidding her to eat the fruit of the tree genesis three first corinthians eleven verse three. God has given us His word, his revealed will, and we are to obey and trust him. If we enter this battle doubting, we have already lost and been swept away by the tide of unbelief, being tossed about by every wind of doctrine ephesians four verse fourteen we must know the truth of God's word so that we will have the confidence in Christ to withstand the evil whirlwind we find ourselves in. Satan recognizes a power in us that is greater than his, and he knows there is one who will teach us to fight. Psalm 14, verse 1 He also knows that if our confidence in Christ fails, all else will as well. Satan's desire in his attacks upon the children of God is to make them curse him who created them. Job 1, verses 10-12 the devil is out to make us apostatize from the faith we have been given. He knows, if even one of God's elect can be reclaimed, he wins. This is because God has promised that not one of his elect will perish Matthew 18, verse 14. Yet the enemy will still make the attempt. God will preserve us and keep us under the shadow of his wing (Psalm 17, verse 8. In his strength we will persevere to the end. One of the elders of our church recently asked us a question that is well worth asking yourself. Are you just as passionate about preserving your life with Christ as the enemy is to ruin it? Satan has an agenda. He wants to take away God's indelible fingerprints in our creation. He wants to take away the image of God that he himself has impressed upon each of us in existence. And lastly, he doesn't want to give up his servants. Do you see evidence of this in the culture around us? Some cover up the image of God in our countenances by the tattooing of our bodies and the multiple body piercings we see daily. We see God's creation being credited to the effects of evolution, to a big bang, to millions of years, to anything but the Creator himself. We see that Satan has tried to take the church and the people in it for himself. This is seen most clearly by the fact that churches refuse to preach against sin and instead welcome it. We see the culture attempting to take God out of everything by taking any concept of fundamental Christianity out of the world, and all the while we sit back and watch it all unfold before us. We must be active on our campaign against the evil one. We have a duty to be a participant, not a bystander, a player, not an onlooker. We are to confidently stand upon the work of Christ and His atonement for us. We must never think that we are in this fight alone. One of the ways to confuse an army is to separate them, picking them off one by one, but we cannot let that happen. If we feel alone, we are apt to fall into a pit of self-despair, a mire of self-pity, that will lead to spiritual despair and hamper our efforts against the enemy. It is important to be in contact with others and to pray for others. We win battles through prayer. We need to remember those who are engaged in the fight with us, those who are fighting in a seemingly hopeless situation. We need to lift them up to the throne room of God, praying for them to be strengthened and to faithfully carry on in this work we have been called to do. Prayer is a great privilege and duty. How humbling it is to think that we, as sinful, errant human beings, can approach the throne room of God without His wrath, and that He has given us His very own Son and Spirit as an intercessor to our pleas. Romans 8, verse 26 We are to pray fervently and ardently at every time of need. Philippians 4, verse 6 We are to pray at every time of struggle, temptation, or trial. Matthew 26, verse 41 Think of how many times Jesus would pray to His Father in heaven throughout His life on this earth, and He never had sins to confess. Surely we, as sinful as we are, have more need than Him to pray, both to confess sins and to praise our great Lord, bringing our struggles to His feet. Luke 18, verse 1 Prayer refreshes us for the fight, renews our energy, and gives us the strength to continue on in the war we have been called to face. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 I have many times heard the phrase, let go and let God. There are times when this would be appropriate, but this is an exception, not daily life. This is the reason so many of us have been lulled into apathy. The greatest wrestling we will do and the hardest struggle we will face will be against the powers of evil, both in our own life and in our culture. We have been called, as believers in Christ, to engage ourselves in this warfare. The moment we come to Christ we are enlisted in his army and are obligated to take up a defensive stand against the enemy, to engage in the battle for marriage as God has defined it, to fight desperately for the little lives that are being murdered daily before they see the light of day, subjected to being killed because the church didn't stand for what was right. We need to set a different course for our culture one that will not be timid and afraid, but one which will dare to take a stand for God's law word. This is a crucial part of Christianity, and it has been sadly neglected in this day and age. We cannot enter the battle doubting God's word, but must instead enter into it heartily and boldly, proclaiming to the world that Christ is triumphant. May we be able to say with Paul, as he wrote to Timothy, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Second Timothy 4 verse 7. Eschatology in American History by Jonathan Character One of the key figures of church history was St. Augustine. St. Augustine lived and worked in the days just prior to and during the sack of the Roman Empire by the Germanic tribes. Historically, St. Augustine has had a significant influence upon the church, for both good and bad in both Catholicism and Protestantism alike. In this context, our interest is in St. Augustine's eschatology. The eschatology of St. Augustine was profoundly influenced by his Manichaean background. Manichaeism was, at the time of Augustine, a great force throughout the Roman Empire. It had, in the centuries prior, spread rapidly across the Roman Empire via the army, and in the day of St. Augustine still retained a strong foothold throughout. The basic belief of Manichaeism was that there are essentially two kinds of gods and two types of beings. On the one hand, there is the good god, the god of spirit and light. And on the other hand, there is the bad God, the God of matter, desire, and darkness. This meant that the world was divided in half. Manichaeism could thus not agree with the Christian assertion that the world was made by God. Genesis 1 verse 1 The scriptures maintain that God is the creator of all, both invisible and visible. Colossians 1 verse 16 And that he, after his creation of all things, declared all, both spirit and matter, mind and body, very good. Thus, when man fell, he fell in the totality of his being. There is no part of God's creation that was immune from the curse, and no part which will not be redeemed by the atoning blood of Christ. Often in our day we hear the call for us to be more spiritual. But in terms of scripture, what virtue is there being more spiritual? After all, Satan and his angels are spiritual beings, and they are totally evil. One can be satanic and be spiritual. What we really mean is that we should be more godly. But, because of the influence of Manichaeism, spirituality was elevated to a place of unrivaled virtue and presented as the ultimate objective of man. In Manichaean thought, the godly man was the one who fled from the world of matter to the world of spirit, from the world of darkness to the world of light. Furthermore, Manichaean thought made it improper for someone to seek material wealth. For in doing so, the Manichaean theorized, the individual was being unspiritual. This is, without doubt, antithetical to the biblical perspective. We are to be stewards of the world God has given us. God gives us blessings materially in order to make his name great. Nowhere does the Bible despise material things, and nor does it ever identify sin as material. Instead, sin is identified as rebellion against God's law word. Because St. Augustine had been so influenced by Manichaeism in his youth, he never entirely shook the influence upon his thinking, and thus, as he looked to the future of the world, his idea of the church was that of a monastic fortress. The purpose of the church was to withdraw as far as possible from the world. In evangelism, its goal was to snatch people from the world and bring them into the fortress of the church, and thus, all around the church was to be the evil civilization of rebellious man salvation was in essence not from sin but from the world it is undoubtable that to hold such a belief will color your view as to what constitutes the christian life it is thus important to recognize that wherever augustinian eschatology has had great influence europe during the middle ages for example the highest form of christianity was to retreat from the world into the religious foundations In Pennsylvania, for instance, during the colonial days, monastic cells were built into which newly converted individuals were funneled as soon as possible. In many of these groups, even marriage was frowned upon. St. Augustine's eschatology was thus very powerful throughout the centuries. At times in history, this eschatology was determinative in the Catholic Church, during the Middle Ages, for example. It has been powerful in the Protestant Church as well. The Christian Reformed Church and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, both, for example, are predominantly amillennial, Augustinian, in their eschatology. Other churches embraced the views of other church fathers and instead of retreat favored a doctrine of rapture. In opposition to both of these aforementioned views was a belief that was becoming more and more popular before the time of the Reformation postmillennialism. This view became, after the Reformation, very important in England, and then even more so in America. Post-millennialism differed from the others in its concept of victory. It thought that instead of running away from the world, Christians should view the whole world as the work of God and seek to conquer it for Christ in every area. As a result, this eschatology bred the belief that it was the duty of the Christian man to conquer the wilderness. It was incumbent upon him to conquer in one area of institutional life and scholarship after another. It should not surprise us that the Puritans in England were the founding fathers of modern science, or that in America, under the influence of postmillennialism, there was an unprecedented breakout and outburst of invention. This was a form of conquest of the world for Christ as seen as an unequivocal religious requirement. Because of this, there was an emphatically different character to any country which held to instead of retreat or rapture, a doctrine of victory and conquest. When America was settled, the early settlers undoubtedly had this eschatology of conquest. America was, for them, a great wilderness which they were required to conquer and turn into a paradise, and if they fell short in this grand mission which was their Christian duty, it would be their great sin and they would be judged for it. Sadly, this grand vision of victory and conquest began to wane and disappear during the 1650s. We do disservice to our history as a country if we think that Christianity was in the majority during the early days of this country. On the contrary, the majority of the occupants of the Mayflower and subsequent vessels were non-Christian. Instead, they were individuals who were seeking wealth or escape from the political tyrannies of Europe. It must be asked, then, why was there such a strong Christian social order? Why was society ordered in such a devout and godly manner? The reason is precisely because when Christians were dedicated to their belief in the obligation to conquer for Christ, they were doing just that. All throughout the colonial period, the Christians were largely in the minority, and yet exerted the greatest influence. Today we have more professing Christians than in any era previous, yet what is the state of our culture today? Does our world bear the marks of Christians extending the lordship of Christ they profess to worship over every area of life as the early colonists did? No, it does not, and this is precisely because they do not have an eschatology of victory. Today as Christians, our situation is much like that of our early fathers. We are in the minority in terms of the populace. The modern evangelical establishment is paralyzed by its lack of a comprehensive gospel as well as outright unbelief. But as a minority, we should rejoice that we have been given the tools of dominion to extend Christ's rule, or kingdom, over every area of life. We are in the most powerful position because History has never been dominated by majorities, but only by dedicated minorities who stand unconditionally on their faith. R.J. Rushduni This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. 1 John 5, verse 4 May we seek the glory of Christ Jesus as we conquer his enemies in his name.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website send us an email and let us know you'd like to join the team may Christ be glorified and his kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth